Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. About one in every four older adults has diabetes. Many have complications of the disease involving other health conditions, reduced functional status, and higher mortality. The ability of older patients to manage their diabetes may be influenced by changes in daily routine, mental health issues, and difficulties getting health care treatment. Today, my guest is Lisa Murres, registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program. Lisa is going to talk about all aspects of diabetes, including causes and risk factors, types, symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment. She'll also explain how older adults with diabetes can manage their condition and use resources to help stay active and healthy. So welcome, Lisa, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, explain to us what is diabetes Uh, What are the main types? What do we need to know about this, especially as it pertains to older adults? Sure. Um, In short, diabetes is a disease when the blood sugar is too high. That's probably the simplest um, definition there. The most common type of diabetes in the United States is type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is related to uh, insufficient insulin activity in the body, as well as insulin resistance. So we all have a pancreas, which is an organ in our body that produces a hormone called insulin. And the job of insulin is to bring down blood sugar. It basically pairs with the glucose in the bloodstream and helps escort that glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells. With insulin resistance, the insulin is just not able to do its job as effectively. So as a result, the the blood sugar is staying high. We're having um, too high levels of glucose in our bloodstream. And then we may also have that insulin insufficiency where insulin is available, the pancreas is producing insulin, but it's just not enough. It's not enough to bring down the blood sugars. Um, So again, we'll see those higher levels of glucose in the bloodstream. Type 1 diabetes is actually an autoimmune disease. So in the case of type 1, the beta cells in the pancreas are destroyed and they're not able to produce insulin anymore. We used to call type 1 diabetes juvenile diabetes because typically people were diagnosed at a young age, but you can actually be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at any point in life. Since the pancreas is no longer able to produce insulin with type 1 diabetes, a patient would be on insulin therapy. And that could happen right away. It could take several months, even up to a year. But eventually, they would need to be on insulin to manage their diabetes. And then one other type is gestational diabetes. This is a diabetes that occurs during pregnancy. Um, It is related to hormonal interference from the placenta. The placenta is emitting hormones that makes it difficult for the mom to control her blood sugar. Um, In a normal pregnancy, the pancreas would just produce extra insulin to bring down the blood sugars. With gestational diabetes, that isn't happening. So typically, someone with gestational diabetes will be trying to manage that either with the diet and exercise or possibly medication. Since it is related to that placental interference, typically when the baby is born, the placenta is delivered, gestational diabetes will resolve. However, someone with gestational diabetes will have a higher risk for type 2 diabetes later in life. And then perhaps one other thing I would mention um, is prediabetes. 
So prediabetes is a case where the blood sugar is higher than normal, but not quite in the diabetes range. Um, it's basically just a risk factor for diabetes along with some other um, risk factors. With prediabetes, we'll often work with a patient um, on lifestyle changes, typically some weight loss for most patients, increased physical activity, and just making better nutritional choices. And so let's get back to the older adults. If an older adult does get diabetes, then what might be the possible risk factors for older adults? Right. Our risk for diabetes, just like many other chronic diseases, increases as we get older. Um, with diabetes, the risk typically starts going up over the age of 35. And that's because that insulin resistance we were speaking about earlier, that also increases as we get older. We also have an increased risk for other comorbidities like hypertension and high cholesterol, and those can also increase our risk for diabetes. When we think about decades of eating habits and um, perhaps a sedentary lifestyle, that will be another risk factor for diabetes. And that's something that you know can increase as we get older as well. We tend to put on some extra weight as we get older. That's pretty typical. Um, that will be another risk factor for diabetes, carrying some extra weight. And then finally, having some of those other um, health issues, such as um, hardening of the arteries or blood vessel disease, that can be another risk factor for diabetes as well. So you mentioned already about prediabetes. Do older adults, are they more likely to have so-called prediabetes? And then you mentioned some of the symptoms. So are the symptoms the same of prediabetes and diabetes? Yeah, just like with diabetes, the risk for prediabetes does increase as we get older. Um, starting at about the age of 45, um, risk increases. Some studies have shown that as many as 50% of the population over the age of 65 have a diagnosis of prediabetes. Um, so we definitely have that increased risk as we get older. Unlike diabetes, prediabetes is considered reversible. So it is something where we can make some lifestyle changes, perhaps lose some weight and become more active. And that can really cut the risk of diabetes um, in many cases by half. Prediabetes doesn't typically have many symptoms. Um, diabetes, on the other hand, can have some symptoms. The most common ones are increased thirst and increased urination. Um, both of those are related to activity from the kidneys. The kidneys are working very hard when our blood sugar is high to filter out that extra glucose. So it's drawing you know, moisture from the body, and it's also um, sending signals to the brain that we need more fluid. So people tend to be very thirsty and then have to spend more time visiting the restroom when they're thirsty. So those are probably the most common symptoms. Other ones might be blurry vision. Um, fatigue. I often hear that from patients. It's just, I just have no energy. I just really don't know what's going on. I just don't feel like I, I the same as, as I normally do. Um, unintentional weight loss, although we do see that more with type 1 diabetes, but that will be a case where someone is eating, possibly even eating more than normal, and the weight is um, decreasing, and it was not a planned weight loss. So those can be some of the symptoms. But I should note that many people um, have no symptoms at all. Uh, it's very common to meet with a patient and they'll tell me a story about how, well, I went in for my annual physical and I came out with a diagnosis of diabetes and they really had no idea because they just didn't have any of those symptoms. So that's a pretty common occurrence as well. If someone does notice these symptoms, um, again, particularly something like the increased thirst and increased urination, it's important to follow up with their physician as soon as possible. 
um, talking to their doctor about the symptoms they're experiencing, um, talking about how long they've been experiencing those symptoms, because then the doctor is going to want to do some additional testing. Um, some additional blood work would be indicated in that case. To be diagnosed with diabetes, the gold standard is a blood test called the hemoglobin A1C. Um, the A1C is your average blood sugar for the previous three months. An A1C of 6.5 or higher is a diagnosis of diabetes, whereas prediabetes would be an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4, and anything below 5.7 would be considered normal. So I often tell my patients with prediabetes, this is really the time to make changes so that we don't progress um, to type 2 diabetes. Another test that a physician might do is um, a fasting blood glucose test, which is typically just part of a basic metabolic panel. Having a fasting glucose of 125 or higher is in the diabetes range, and the prediabetes would be 100 to 124. Again, below 100 would be considered normal. You had mentioned the importance of blood pressure, hypertension, and also managing cholesterol. And would you confirm that it's really important for people then to keep an eye on their blood pressure and manage their cholesterol, especially if they have diabetes? Absolutely. Um, I kind of sometimes refer to that as the trifecta, having high blood sugar, having high blood pressure, and having high cholesterol. Those often all go hand in hand. Um, high blood pressure increases the risk for heart disease and stroke, and that's something people with diabetes um, are twice as likely to experience. So it is important to control blood pressure, um, and having that diagnosis of diabetes and high blood pressure or hypertension can really increase that risk of heart disease. Similarly, having high cholesterol, particularly high LDL or bad cholesterol, can also increase that risk of cardiovascular disease. So typically very important to control that as well. With cholesterol, um, diabetes tends to lower your HDL or good cholesterol, raise triglycerides, and then also raise the LDL or bad cholesterol, which again is going to increase the risk of heart disease and stroke. There's been some studies that have shown a link between insulin resistance and um, high cholesterol. So that's something that, again, we want to pay close attention to. It's very common for a person to be put on a statin when they're diagnosed with diabetes, even if they don't have a history of high cholesterol. And that's because that's a protective measure. Um, because we have that increased risk of cardiovascular disease, it's really important to reduce um, risk and reduce that LDL cholesterol. And statins are very effective at doing that. As a dietitian, I will also work with my patients um, on some dietary changes that can help lower LDL and increase um, HDL, the good cholesterol. So we'll talk about things like making heart-healthy choices. We see the most benefits when we replace a saturated fat with an unsaturated fat. So that would be a case of instead of putting butter on my toast in the morning, I put something like peanut butter or avocado, which would be more of an unsaturated fat. So there are some dietary changes that we can make that are going to be helping with cholesterol as well. And then in terms of high blood pressure, um, not unusual to be on at least one blood pressure medication, maybe more than one to help control that. The recommendation for people with diabetes for blood pressure is 130 over 80 or less. Um, that's considered to be in good control of that. So along with medication, we can also work towards some dietary changes, typically a low sodium diet. Um, so making some choices to reduce sodium in 
our daily diet, which is oftentimes reducing processed foods and reducing restaurant foods. Those are the largest amounts of sodium in the American diet. So that can go a long way, which is cutting back in those two areas. And we're going to be talking more about other practices to adapt if one has diabetes in the second half, but just wanted to check a couple of more possibility-related symptoms to diabetes. One is mental health and how diabetes affects mental health. And as I was preparing these questions, I also noticed there might be a relationship between hearing loss and diabetes, which obviously we think about hearing loss for older adults, but talk about hearing loss and diabetes as well as mental health. With high blood sugar, um, it can basically affect all the nerves throughout the body, um, and it, it, that could also be nerves leading to our ears. So there is an increased risk for hair, hearing loss with people um, who have diabetes. Um, that is oftentimes increased when the blood sugar is high. So I do want to be clear when we talk about someone having diabetes, um, typically with these complications, it's someone who has uncontrolled diabetes. So a case where the blood sugar is high, you know, above what our target goals are. And in many cases, the blood sugar has been high for a number of years. Um, so it's not a case that someone has a diagnosis of diabetes and they're automatically going to have um, complications, um, including hearing loss. It's just risk increases um, as the, the blood sugar increases and the A1C increases. But going back to the hearing loss, um, over time, those high blood sugar levels can damage the small blood vessels and nerves in the inner ear. Likewise, um, having low blood sugar can cause damage there as well. So someone um, perhaps that is uh, on a medication that can cause lows or perhaps uh, kind of struggling with that area, that can cause um, damage to the nerve signals traveling to the inner ear. So both types of nerve damage can eventually lead to hearing loss. Hearing loss is twice as common in people who have diabetes as it is in people um, of the same age who do not have a diagnosis of diabetes. And even people with prediabetes um, do have an increased risk, about 30% higher rates of hearing loss than people with normal blood sugars. So it's definitely important to monitor any hearing changes and following up with your doctor in those cases. Likewise, um, eye health is very important. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in the United States, and there's something called diabetic retinopathy, which is an eye condition that can cause vision loss and blindness in people who have diabetes. This, like many of the other things we've talked about, is related to having um, many years of high blood sugar. That can damage the retina, the part of the eye that detects light and sends signals to the brain um, through a nerve in the back of the eye, the optic nerve. So this damage um, can cause fluid to start leaking when um, the sugar blocks those tiny blood vessels, and that can cause hemorrhages. To make up for this, the eye will create new blood vessels, but these blood vessels are very weak, and so they typically will leak um, and bleed easily. So it's important for someone with diabetes to have um, a dilated retinal exam once a year so the ophthalmologist can look at the back of the eye and just make sure that there has been no damage done from the diabetes or the high blood sugars. And this is different from a corrective exam. This is not something where a case of, you know, you need new eyeglasses or contacts. This is, again, a medical exam where we can look at the back of the eye and detect any um, eye disease. It's important to do this early um, because there are treatments for diabetic retinopathy. There's things like lasers, 
um, injections that can help with that. So having that eye exam and just staying on top of that can be really important um, to be able to get treatment early, which is typically most effective there. One other area for prevention that I might mention is um, good foot care. It's kind of a joke in some of our diabetes education classes of why do we talk about feet so much? But it is important um, for someone with diabetes to take good care of their feet. I've had, unfortunately, many cases over the years um, while I've been a diabetes educator of patients that have had a wound um, that's developed into an abscess and that has um, ultimately led to an amputation. I had a patient um, many years ago um, when I first started uh, becoming a diabetes educator, um, fairly young man in his early 40s, and um, he was diagnosed pretty early um, in his early 20s with diabetes. So he'd had it for you know about 20 years when I saw him. He had um, a case, I think, for you know some financial reasons where he stopped taking his medication. Um, he was on insulin therapy. And um, as a result, you know, the blood sugar, of course, got very high because he wasn't taking his medication. And this was something um, that led to some nerve damage in his feet, um, what's called neuropathy. So he wasn't able to feel um, different parts of his foot. Somehow or another, he got a cut on his foot. Um, it developed into a wound. And by the time he noticed it, it had um, progressed quite far along. And he ended up losing two toes. Um, and again, this is a guy who was you know, probably 41 years old. So it wasn't um, you know, a, a case of someone who, who was quite elderly, but it was a pretty young man. So it can happen. Um, it is definitely something that I've seen um, with multiple patients over the years. So that foot care is really important. Um, we want to make sure that we're checking our feet on a regular basis. So the American Diabetes Association recommends checking feet daily. That's just scanning it for any cuts, sores, blisters, swelling, um, anything that, again, can progress to, to something that like a wound. With our toenails, we want to keep those trimmed. And if a, a patient can't do that, I encourage them to go see a podiatrist. That's typically something that is covered by insurance and having their podiatrist trim their toenails. And then protecting our feet, um, not going barefoot, wearing well-fitting shoes, keeping our feet moisturized, um, and having a foot exam by either a podiatrist or the primary care physician once a year, just again to check for um, that sensation, checking for pulses and blood flow, um, just making sure that everything looks you know, pretty good um, with the feet there. So all of those things are, are some complications that we can have diabetes, everything from the, the hearing loss um, to the foot damage, eye damage. Um, but to be clear, that is often related to high blood sugars and uncontrolled diabetes. So it, it is something that we want to, um, you know, just stay on top of with good preventative care to help reduce the risk of any of those complications. Given all of the attention that now needs to be given in terms of these symptoms, can people get depressed or are there other possible mental health symptoms that are associated with diabetes? That's a great question. And um, kind of going back to the patient I was just talking about a minute, minute ago, um, I, I think that was definitely something that young man was experiencing as well. Um, there's a term called diabetes distress, um, and, and that's relating to having kind of overwhelming feelings of um, fear, uh, discouragement, frustration over dealing with the challenges of diabetes. Um, so it, it is definitely a case where, you know, talking to the physician, um, talking to someone like me, a diabetes um, educator, to really help with um, managing and problem solving with diabetes, because you're absolutely right, it can be, you know, overwhelming. 
Um, while diabetes is a very manageable disease, um, that's the good news. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, just everything we talked about, thinking about our feet and thinking about our eyes. And, you know, everyone has those scary stories of having a relative or neighbor, perhaps that, that had an amputation or had uh, to go on dialysis or, you know, just something like that, um, that, that makes it really scary and can be a major source of anxiety um, for many people. So it is something that we want to stay on top of. Um, people with diabetes are twice as likely to be diagnosed with depression as someone who does not have diabetes. And we don't really know, is it a case um, that someone has depression, so they're more likely to be diagnosed with diabetes, or is it a case they have diabetes, so they're more likely to be diagnosed with depression? Not quite sure um, of the direction there, but we do know it is sort of a, a bi-directional relationship there. And again, just speaking with your physician, um, if you have a, a diabetes educator to, to kind of meet with on a regular basis, and just kind of managing um, kind of some of those feelings of fear and anxiety. Um, in some cases with a diagnosis of depression, medication can also be helpful, um, but hopefully feeling like you've got people, you know, in your corner on your team to help you manage this disease, I think can go a long way with um, help reducing that diabetes distress and, and that feeling of frustration that this is just, um, you know, so overwhelming and I'm not quite sure, you know, how I can handle it all. And I was wondering then, Lisa, after the diagnosis has been made and the assessment of the various symptoms, when it comes to the treatment then, what determines whether insulin therapy or oral medicine is going to be prescribed? It really is very uh, patient-centered in those types of cases. That is what the, the American Diabetes Association recommends in terms of their standards um, for medical management to make it a very person-centered approach. So it depends on possibly what other um, comorbidities a patient might have. Um, I'll give you an example of a patient I just had the other day. Um, this is someone who was recently diagnosed with diabetes. Um, their A1C was, I think, 8.4. So higher than we would like it to be. Typically, our goal for A1C with diabetes is to get it below 7. So they were, you know, a good bit above that. Um, they were also carrying some extra weight and hit, had a history of um, coronary artery disease. So with this particular patient, you know, we're, we're not just looking at the diabetes and the A1C, although that is part of it. We're also looking at what other health conditions, you know, is this patient experiencing? So in this case, um, the patient's physician um, put them on a medication called Ozempic, which I think probably many of your listeners are familiar with. Um, that's been in the news quite a bit. Um, Ozempic lately has been talked about in terms of weight loss, but it is a diabetes medication. It's in a class of medication called the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Um, that's just the mechanism of it. It's basically helping reduce blood sugars through work with our incretin or our gut hormones. Since it does work on those gut hormones, which are related to feelings of um, hunger and feelings of society, people often lose weight um, on Ozempic. So not only does it control the blood sugar, but it also has that um, side effect of weight loss there. So with this particular patient, since they did have um, some obesity and would like to lose weight, and that's going to help um, them manage their diabetes a little more effectively, they also had that um, cardiovascular history, and Ozempic has some benefits in that area. It was a really good medication um, for them, so, so they were started on that. 
Now, I will say with Ozempic, um, it is a, a newer medication. Um, it's a very expensive medication. So, you know, it's often a case where a patient also has to be able to afford it. So that's going to be another factor that we're going to think about with diabetes medications cost. Um, luckily with this patient, they had good insurance coverage. And so th- they were able to afford the Ozempic and, and that seemed to be working out pretty well for them. So definitely going to be very um, patient-centered um, in that those particular cases there. With insulin therapy, we typically will see that when someone is a little further along their journey with diabetes, um, you know, maybe they've had it for a number of years, perhaps we're on some oral medications that aren't quite as effective anymore, um, and the A1C is increasing. So in that case, a physician, you know, may say, okay, well, I think it's about time to, to start insulin. And if you recall, we talked earlier, as with um, type 2 diabetes, there's a case of that insufficient insulin production. So we don't have enough insulin being produced by the pancreas. So just like any other hormone, a thyroid hormone, for example, we need to replace that. So we're going to um, use the, the um, exogenous insulin or insulin injections um, to help control those blood sugars. And that doesn't mean, you know, a patient did something wrong. It doesn't mean they failed at their diabetes management. It just means that their diabetes has progressed to the point where insulin therapy is indicated. And we're big fans of insulin. Um, It is something that's, you know, another tool in our toolbox to help us control blood sugars. Um, That is the bottom line. That's what we really want to be doing is controlling those blood sugars, um, reducing risk of complications. And if insulin is something that can help us do that, then absolutely, we're definitely going to look to that. Uh, A lot of fears with insulin. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will tell me, oh, I'm so scared of needles or, you know, it makes me think of my grandmother who went blind when she started insulin. Um, And again, it's not a case of um, someone failing or doing anything wrong. It's just something where it's going to be more effective to manage their blood sugars. So I'll walk a patient through with how to, you know, put on their pen needle, how to do that first injection. And typically once we get past that first hurdle, it's a lot easier. Um, They'll realize that this is not quite as scary as they thought. Um, And insulin's a really good medication because we can titrate it very specifically for someone's situation um, to really help bring down those blood sugars. Well, we are going to take a short break here now. We are having a very interesting conversation about diabetes with Lisa Muras, who is the registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are talking about diabetes today with Lisa Murras, who's a uh, registered dietitian and educator at Virginia Hospital Center. Lisa, we talked already in the first half of this interview about the treatment and insulin therapy and oral medication. Help us understand a little bit more about the, the cost. I mean, because we're talking about supplies and medications, 
are these um, items covered by Medicare or other insurance? Can having a diabetes diagnosis be uh, of concern and be expensive? Absolutely. In 2019, the American Diabetes Association estimated that the cost of diabetes was about $13,000 per person per year. So absolutely, it can definitely be expensive um, to manage. Um, In terms of coverage, Medicare does cover most medications and um, diabetes care supplies. Uh, That would be specifically Medicare Part D in terms of um, diabetes medications that help us maintain glucose or or blood sugar. It also covers diabetes self-management, which is what I do. Um, I'm a certified diabetes care and education specialist. So that means um, I work with people who have a diagnosis of diabetes, both type one and type two and gestational diabetes. And someone would uh, come in and, you know, could be one session, could be multiple sessions. We also have classes that helps people manage their diabetes. And with Medicare, they will cover 10 hours of the first year of diagnosis. Um, So in terms of our program, that would enable someone to come in, meet with a diabetes educator. And I should also add, they they also could do telehealth since COVID, (laughs) just about everyone offers telehealth now as well. So they also could do that uh, via Zoom. but basically, we would you know meet with them individually, and then they could um, come to the the diabetes uh, classes, and then um, could have follow up appointments as well. Still within that ten hours, um, after that first year, Medicare would cover another two hours of follow up training um, after that the first initial ten hours was completed. So that is something that that Medicare would cover in terms of medications and diabetes education. Medicare Part B would cover. Um, home blood sugar monitoring supplies. So that could be a glucometer, which is probably what many people think about when they think about monitoring your blood sugar. That's, you know, the finger stick where you would check the blood sugar through a drop of blood. Um, Medicare will cover the test strips that go with the glucometer, um, the lancing device and lancets, which are your needles um, to prick your finger. There sometimes are limits on how many strips you can get. In many cases, a a patient might just get one strip a day, so it only enable them to check their blood sugar once a day. Um, Part B would also cover a newer technology called a continuous glucose monitor, um, or CGM. Uh, A CGM is a sensor, a device that someone would wear on their abdomen or on the back of their arm. And unlike the finger sticks, it's measuring glucose in the interstitial tissue or the space between the cells. And then it's sending that information uh, via Bluetooth to either an app on a patient's phone or a receiver, a device that looks a little bit like a pager. Um, A CGM is giving someone kind of around the clock information. With the meter, you're just kind of getting that snapshot. You know, when you check your blood sugar, you poke your finger, you know, test that drop of blood, you're getting, this is my blood sugar right now. Whereas the CGM is giving you, you know, sleeping, waking, before meals, after meals, as long as they're wearing the sensor and they've got that that, um, connection, they're going to be getting data um, and can look at that to help, you know, determine patterns and, you know, seeing what's going on with their blood sugar. So Medicare will cover that as well. Um, With the CGM, Medicare does oftentimes want someone to be on insulin therapy. So unfortunately, not everyone will have that, Um, but they will cover it for people that are on insulin. Um, And then the the meter would be an option for anyone. Someone that was either um, not on medication or on just an oral medication would have that coverage um, for the glucometer. 
With other insurances, um, typically there is coverage, um, you know, pretty rare not to have any coverage at all. So that would be for the medications as well as some of um, the supplies. I find that some of the commercial payers are a little more lenient on the CGM, that continuous glucose monitor, so they're more likely to cover that than Medicare. Um, so if someone has a secondary um, insurance, they may get coverage for the CGM there. And as you might imagine, um, a lot of people you know, really like using the CGM, just really enjoy having that extra data and frankly also appreciate not having to prick their finger. So that can be a benefit there as well. Um, it used to be when CGMs first came out, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was mostly my type 1 patients that were using them. Um, but I really see a lot of it. I'd say probably about 50% of my patients now use a CGM, um, including ones with type 2 diabetes. Um, we recently had a CGM um, called the Dexcom G7 that was approved for use with gestational diabetes. So that was um, another nice um benefit for, for those patients who typically have to check their blood sugar, you know, four times a day to um, see what, what's going on with it and see if they're able to manage that. So the coverage is there, um, may take a little bit of digging um, and some phone calls. Um, Medicare for things like the glucometer, it can be a pharmacy benefit, or they may be able to get those supplies through a, a third party. Um, mail orders is often an option to have those sent to them. And then for people that are still working, um, sometimes there is going to be some coverage, different programs through their employers as well. Um, at the hospital, we have a program called Lavongo where people with diabetes um, can have a glucometer and test strips um, as well as some health coaching through that program um, as part of benefits that they have. At Virginia Hospital Center, as I introduced you, you are part of the uh, Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program. Does one need to get a referral from their physician? Can somebody just walk in? Is it free? Do they make a, need to make an appointment? So that's kind of the first part of the question. And then the second is, since this program may be broadcast in other parts of the country, is a program like what you have at Virginia Hospital Center similar or are there other kinds of programs where Folks who, you know, newly diagnosed or need to have a checkup can learn more about diabetes. So at our hospital, it is preferred that someone have a referral from their physician because we often like to take a look at um, lab results as well. Um, Medicare does require a, a referral, so you would need it in that case. Um, other payers, not always, um, but you would need it for Medicare. So the process typically is um, someone would get a referral from either their primary care physician or their um, endocrinologist, um, which is you know a doctor that specializes in um, endocrine disorders such as diabetes. Um, and send that over, um, and then they would call to make an appointment. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we see patients both in person and via telehealth, so whatever someone's preference is on that. And typically, it, it's a long session. Um, that's where you're really going to see the benefit with a, a diabetes care specialist. Um, we will spend you know, 60 to 90 minutes typically with a patient in that first session. So that's not something you're going to get from your doctor for sure. They're probably going to give you, you know, a prescription and perhaps a, a handout. Um, on ways to eat better. Um, whereas we're going to spend a lot of time, you know, talking about that lifestyle um, changes, which is going to be, you know, the diet, um, nutrition, it's going to be a physical activity. We're going to be assisting people with monitoring. Um, I often help someone, you know, with putting on a CGM or using their uh, meter. And we're going to talk to them about their medications, you know, what is the mechanism of the medication, um, you know, when they can 
should be taking it, um, what possible side effects they might experience. So, you know, we really dive very deep um, and, and provide a lot of um, support to people who have that diagnosis of diabetes. Um, I would say if someone is in another part of the country and is not um, in this particular area, a good place to go to um, is diabeteseducator.com. Um, that is the um, Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, and that they can put in their zip code and see what um, diabetes self-management programs are in their area, um, because there are programs, you know, all across the country and, and very similar to ours, probably have individual appointments, um, classes, just, you know, ways of better managing um, that their diabetes and, you know, getting some, some good um, training on that. So that would be something, you know, definitely to look into um, there. Obviously, you've talked about blood sugar monitoring with the CGM, and you also mentioned a bit in the first half of the program about healthy food choices. So, and with respect to healthy foods, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about weight gain. Is that problematic for people with diabetes then? Yeah, weight is, is definitely something we spend some time on. Um, if we think about a, a case of um, risk factors, you know, for diabetes, um, carrying some extra weight is a risk factor. So if someone has um, perhaps a family history of diabetes, kind of has that uh, genetic predisposition to di diabetes, and then they add another risk factor, such as um, being overweight or um, having obesity, that is just making it more likely that they're going to be um, diagnosed with diabetes. So we are working toward weight changes in those cases. Um, with prediabetes, we typically are working toward about 5 to 7% weight loss from baseline because the research shows that that's really effective, that that can really help with um, reducing that likelihood of being diagnosed with diabetes. And then we get to the point of diabetes, again, weight's still playing um, a role there. Um, there, the research shows about 7 to 10% from baseline is, is effective for reducing blood sugar. So that is um, something that you know we'll start with. Many times a, a patient will have a longer term goal, maybe wants to lose a little more than that. But I think it's a little reassuring to hear that you know it's not, I have to get back to what I weighed when I was you know 19 or anything like that. It can just be, um, in some cases, you know, 15, 20 pounds um, can help really reduce um, the blood sugar there. And not to minimize um, you know, that it's easy to lose weight. We all know it's very difficult to do, but again, can be reassuring to, to hear that it's not going to be, you know, perhaps quite as overwhelming as they thought. And the reason we work toward weight loss with diabetes is because having obesity can make it harder to manage diabetes. And it can also raise the risk for some of those other health problems we discussed earlier, such as cardiovascular disease and um, high blood pressure. It's tied very closely to blood sugar. Um, I have a patient I've been seeing for a number of years, and it's a, a very strong relationship. As his weight goes up, his A1C goes up, and as his weight goes down, his A1C goes down. We just kind of see that tracking there. So, you know, it's often something that we'll kind of strive for that, you know, 7 to 10% from baseline because we're going to see a reduction in blood sugar and a reduction in A1C um, in that particular case there. So as I said, it, it can be working towards some dietary changes, um, increased activity, physical activity. Um, and then in some cases, you know, we talked about the, the Ozempic earlier, um, perhaps a medication can help with that, particularly if someone's, you know, really been struggling with their weight, you know, for a lifetime. Um, some of those newer medications can be helpful, um, not to minimize the lifestyle changes. Those are very important and something we still want to do. But in some cases, a medication can kind of help people along a little bit. 
And do you recommend specific exercises or is it very customized in terms of who your patients are? Absolutely. Um, kind of a type of medication that we don't have to actually swallow if you want to think about it that way. Um, the recommendation for physical activity for the population, not just people with diabetes, but for, for our, the whole population is 150 minutes per week of moderate physical activity. So that's typically a starting point for me um, when I'm working with a patient. Um, really depends on the person. You know, some people are already fairly active and they might be, you know, reaching that milestone. And in that case, we'll say, okay, well, can we do a little better? You know, could we get it closer to 200 minutes per week um, if that's the case? And if someone is very sedentary, then, you know, maybe our, our first goal is just to get moving, um, just to, you know, kind of get out there. And we might set a, a smaller goal say, let's, um, you know, try to go for a walk, you know, a 20 minute walk um, twice a week. We'll start with that and, and see how um, we do. Within that recommendation, um, there's the word moderate. So moderate means we want to increase our heart rate. So if someone is walking, it should be a brisk walk, but it could also be tennis, Zumba, uh, golf, you know, there's many activities out there. So I'll work with a patient to, you know, talk about what fits with their schedule, um, what they enjoy, because we're more likely to stick to something if we enjoy it. And then whatever is appropriate for them. Um, I might have a patient that has limited mobility and maybe isn't able to do a long walk or, you know, do, do much of that um, weight bearing exercise. So, you know, there's a lot of options in terms of chair exercises or, um, you know, things more targeted towards seniors. Um, the hospital has a, a very nice fitness program that has, you know, the gamut has, you know, high intensity exercises as well as chair yoga, senior stretching, you know, just all sorts of things there. And then many people are going to find that in their own community as well, um, perhaps with a senior center or a recreational center where they can find some of those activities that kind of meets them where they are are. But it's absolutely important to think about that physical activity. Um, in terms of blood sugar, it helps reduce insulin resistance. So when we have that case where the pancreas is producing insulin, but insulin is not doing its job properly, we've got that insulin resistance, physical activity can help improve that situation, basically making the muscle cells more sensitive to insulin. So they're kind of opening up and allowing that insulin to get inside, um, which is going to reduce blood sugar. And then all the other benefits we see from physical activity, of course, can also help with reducing cholesterol, reducing blood pressure, um, stress management, you know, lots of things that we're going to see there. So it's absolutely something I, I really encourage my patients, you know, to, to work um, no matter where they're at. I mean, I think everyone can do something um, is the bottom line there. And I'm wondering, Lisa, if people do all the people with diabetes do all the things that you're talking about, and I'll just reemphasize diet changes, weight loss, exercise. Can it result in the disappearance or at least the reversal of diabetes? Can it ultimately go away? So I don't use the term um, reverse. Um, I, I like to use the term remission. Um, that's kind of more my preferred term there. Unfortunately, there is no cure for diabetes, um, either type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Um, at this point in time, once we have um, damage done to those beta cells in the pancreas, they cannot be uh you know, regenerated um, at this point in time. So someone cannot be cured of diabetes. We can manage it though. Um, it can be controlled and that's the really important thing there. So when someone has um, kind of 
remission of their diabetes, it means that they're keeping that A1C in good control, which again is going to be less than seven. It means they're um, doing everything they can to prevent complications with their eyes or their kidneys. Um, it means that they're you know just really putting in the effort to control their blood sugars. And I think that's the positive thing about diabetes, even though it is a chronic condition for which we don't have a cure. Um, it is a very manageable condition, and with you know some effort and support, someone um, can really reduce the likelihood of having those complications. They're definitely not inevitable. Um, so, so we can certainly you know manage that very effectively and um, you know prolong life and activity. It goes without saying that people should stop smoking if they are. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely does not go well with diabetes. Um, it is a risk factor for diabetes. So again, before someone even has a diagnosis of diabetes, if they smoke, it's increasing their risk for getting diabetes. Um, people with uh, uh, people who smoke um, have about a 30 to 40% um, increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And then once they have a diagnosis of diabetes, it makes it more difficult to manage. Um, it increases that risk of complications such as heart disease and kidney disease, um, eye disease, all of that um, is going to be increased when we um, smoke. It is something because of nicotine. So nicotine basically constricts blood vessels, which makes it harder to control the blood sugar. Um, and again, I'm going to increase those um, risk of complications there. So definitely encourage my patients um, to stop smoking if they do. Um, and then that can be overwhelming um, if someone is dealing with you know a lot of changes because of the diabetes and having this new diagnosis, which you know as we've talked about can can certainly seem overwhelming. Um, quitting smoking, you know, seems hard to do as well. Um, but it's going to be a really important change. And it's going to really make a difference, again, of reducing the risk of any of those complications and just really making it easier to manage blood sugar. Earlier, you mentioned about the importance of foot care. And uh, I think you gave some really good uh, tips as to how to keep the feet healthy. But I was also wondering if people with diabetes might be more likely to have oral health conditions or gum disease. Yeah, it's definitely a connection um, through the whole body, isn't it? It's really head to toe um, in terms of those complications. Um, in terms of dental care, it is just an increased risk of having gum disease or um, gingivitis with diabetes. We've got glucose all throughout the body, um, and including in our saliva. So that's why we have that increased risk of tooth decay. Basically, it's just good oral hygiene, though, to help reduce that risk. Um, you know, going to the dentist twice a year for checkups and cleanings, um, brushing twice a day, flossing regularly. Um, those are all ways we can reduce that risk of having complications to our mouth. So it's just like we said with, um, you know, the feet, you know, having those foot exams, taking good care of our feet. Um, same thing with our eyes, having those eye exams once a year um, by an ophthalmologist, that dilated retinal exam, reporting any changes to our doctor. Um, oral care is the same. You know, we just want to stay on top of that. We want to make sure we're doing everything we can to reduce risk, um, which is going to be good, good oral hygiene as the bottom line. Also, I was wondering about immunizations. Obviously, there's a whole schedule of uh, immunizations like flu shots and pneumonia vaccinations. And now we have to think about COVID vaccinations and boosters. Is there any problem for people who have diabetes? Are they encouraged to get these same uh, vaccinations and immunizations? They are. With diabetes, someone does not have an increased risk of getting pneumonia or um, 
even getting COVID. Um, it's not that we're more likely to get it with diabetes. It's just we're more likely to have complications. And that's why immunizations are important. Um, they're basically just a preventative tool to help reduce risk, um, severity from disease or medical conditions. Um, because diabetes can make it harder for the immune system to fight off infection infections um, such as the flu or COVID, um, patients, you know, have that that higher risk of the complications. So we really want to stick to, um, you know, a schedule with those. Um, in terms of the flu shot, it's, it's recommended to get that annually, just a way of reducing risk. We know it's not 100%, but um, certainly going to reduce the risk of having complications like pneumonia from the flu. Um, COVID, it's still a little early on COVID, but the research that we saw was that people with diabetes had worse outcomes um, compared to people that did not have diabetes. So more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to experience mortality from COVID. So now that we have those vaccinations, you know, people definitely want to um, get those to help pr protect themselves. So it's recommended um, to have that, you know, two dose series for COVID. And then currently uh, the recommendation is to receive the bivalent booster. Even if you've had a booster before, that you, you should get the bivalent one, um, the most current version. Um, so that that's just, again, going to help reduce the risk from all the variants that are coming um, with, with COVID. So talking to your physician, um, if someone has diabetes is important, um, just seeing, you know, which ones are indicated, you know, when should I get them? Sometimes it's a one dose, sometimes it's a two dose series. Um, sometimes need to be spaced apart a certain amount of time. So, you know, there's um, some really good education out there on the um, Centers for Disease Control on Immunizations. I'm kind of show you a, a schedule for people with diabetes. And you can even, you know, print that out and take that with you to your doctor and say, okay, it looks like these are the ones that I'm supposed to be getting. Have I gotten this? I know I, I personally sometimes forget, did I, did I have that shot? I can't remember. Um, so you want to, you know, talk to your physician about, you know, seeing if this has already been given. And if not, you know, when is a good time to do that? Um, again, just like everything else we've talked about today, you know, it's really about reducing risk um, and immunizations are going to be a preventative tool to help reduce risk. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end of the uh, the interview, but I wanted to turn to one more topic and that's about support. First of all, since you've talked so much about uh, the various factors that people who have diabetes need to deal with, and we don't need to reiterate them again, but I was wondering if the care partners and family members are a part of the team as you see older adults with diabetes. Uh, how can they provide support uh, for the older adult? I think one really key area, if possible, is taking part in medical appointments um, with that person. Um, in many cases, you know, it is possible to do a telehealth appointment. So even if someone's on, you know, the other side of the country, perhaps they could still be part of that appointment or even call in and listening on the phone. Um, it can be really overwhelming, you know, as we've talked about. So, you know, it's nice to have a second person there to listen and, and see what um, medications are being prescribed and, and talking a little bit about, you know, the schedule and when they should be taken. Um, older adults take a lot of medications in many cases. So having a support person, you know, just talking through all of that and making sure that they understand exactly what their their parent um, or, or relative is taking and when um, can be really helpful. With diabetes, um, since nutrition plays a, a pretty big role, 
Um, I think if possible, being part of meal preparation um, and uh, meal planning can be really important. I often encourage patients, you know, if they have um, a spouse or family member that is part of, you know, the meals to, to come into the visits because we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about, you know, carbohydrates and, you know, uh, portion sizes. And, you know, I have my plastic food models that I'll get out and show them. So it's really helpful to have, you know, um, a spouse or a relative or friend that can kind of help, um, you know, that person understand understand, you know, what, what this looks like and, you know, say, oh, well, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, in, in terms of food choices. Um, so I think that's a really important area um, as well is, is just being part of not only the more clinical side of it in terms of medication and monitoring, but also the, the lifestyle side of it in terms of meals um, can be really helpful for, for managing diabetes. The other part of the support topic is, are there actually support groups of people who have diabetes that they can help each other like, gee, what did you do when you found out or, or, or whatever? I was just wondering if it's, it's can be maybe overwhelming. So talking with somebody else who has diabetes might be comforting or educational. Are those available? They are. Yeah. There's a number of online um, support group um, and as well as some in-person ones. Um, I had mentioned earlier the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, which is um, diabeteseducator.org. I think I said .com earlier. It's actually .org. Um, they have a list of in-person and online support groups, so that's a great place to look. Um, there's another group for women called Diabetes Sisters that has um, meetup groups for you know exercise um, as well as peer support. Um, and they have um, kind of, they call them pods um, all around the country. So that can be a nice resource as well. And then many um, senior centers have support groups, um, you know, in many cases in person, you know, meeting perhaps once a month or so, um, having guest speakers, having, you know, different topics that can be really helpful for that, that ongoing support. So those would be some areas I'd recommend checking out. You've given so many resources already. Any final resources or how folks can get in touch with you, with your program and final comments. Absolutely. Yeah. If someone is interested um, in meeting with a, a diabetes educator at Virginia Hospital Center, um, you can go to the, the website, which is um, bhchealth.org. And if you just search on diabetes, um, you'll probably find our, our program there as well as the phone number. So we, we are definitely available to help people. If you're interested in getting just more information on diabetes and managing it, I definitely would recommend the American Diabetes Association, and they're at diabetes.org. Um, that is a, a very comprehensive um, information um, on both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. You know, it, it is something that is very manageable, diabetes. Um, it, it is not um, those complications are inevitable in any sort of way. Um, it is something that a person can really manage and control. So despite some of the scary things we talked about today in terms of, you know, problems with our eyes or our feet, um, diabetes is very manageable. Um, and you have a, a lot of support, and a lot of resources out there that can help you manage it. Um, and, and hopefully still, you know, have a good, happy life with diabetes. Good advice. So I want to thank Lisa Merez, registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with Virginia Hospital Center Outpatient Diabetes and Nutrition Program for joining me today. Thank you, Lisa. Nice to talk with you. 
If you would like to learn about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio programs and TV show episodes. And of course, you can also access all of our programs. The radio shows are on podcasts on Apple and Spotify, so you can access them from the website as well. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and to learn more about that company, log on to inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters again today, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music.